Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, it's Anna. I want to let you know that in this episode, we talk about someone taking their own life and reference how they did it. If you are struggling with your mental health, please reach out and call the National Mental Health Crisis Hotline. That number is 988. I just have this bizarre love for what I see around me. And I, and I, this has come really as a result of this grief. This is Death, Sex, and Money the show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. I've talked about grief a lot on this show. And still once in a while, I encounter a story that makes me think, what does that sort of grief look like? That's how I felt going into this conversation with Terry Kelber. When you talk about the death of your husband, um, what are the words that you use to describe how he died? Self-immolation. That's that's what I use. In 2018, Terry's husband, David Buckle, doused himself in gasoline and lit himself on fire in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. Minutes before, he sent a note to prominent media outlets. He wrote, Most humans on the planet now breathe air made unhealthy by fossil fuels, and many die early deaths as a result. My early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves. David was 60, an environmentalist and a former civil rights attorney. Do you use the word suicide? Uh, I often don't. No. I tend to say he took his own life um, out of deep distress about the environment um, through self-immolation. You and I'm not 100% clear other than the word suicide uh, I think people bring a lot of bias to that word it reflects people who are not rational 
Um, I, I can't explain it other than I, as a word, I think it, it's, it comes with a lot of assumptions about what was going on. Yeah. And I'm trying to not, I'm trying not to do that part of, partly out of respect for David. Yeah. Um, I am struck that the words that you did use, he took his own life out of deep distress about the state of the environment through self-immolation. There's a precision to that. it was a rational that. decision. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it was a rational decision on his part, I'm sure. Even though we did not know about it, I I know that he thought about, you know, I'm, I am convinced he thought about it for a chunk of time. And, and it was rational for him. When David died, he and Terry had been together for more than 30 years. Terry said when they first met, David was just going to law school, and Terry was trying to figure out what to do with his life. I came to New York City as a dancer and actually danced professionally for a bit, and then for a variety of reasons went into kind of more of the management side and worked for the New York City Ballet, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I felt as if I stayed that route there was this question about, well, what would the impact, you know, was I going to have some impact on the world? Is this really what I wanted? If I look back, would I have been happy to just worked in arts administration my entire life? And I, and I was beginning to think, no, I'm not sure that w- that would fulfill me. Hmm. I was always drawn to kind of more political contemporary stuff, but never, I was never able to make it stick. And David, that's what David was all about. And I, I think it's one of the reasons that drew me to him. Hmm. He wanted to make sure when he left this world, he could say the world's a better place because I've been here. Mm-hmm. I remember the first night we met, we we just talked and talked and talked about different books we were reading. And and that was unusual for me. I, I usually go out days that didn't happen, but we right away connected over ideas, thoughts, which was great. Hmm. Did it become serious right away? Yeah, it was pretty instantaneous for both of us. Uh-huh. Which, you know, you sometimes wonder, and you hear this, that, like, it's like, it's a little bit like, Two souls. I'm sorry. That's just it's a little bit like two two souls meeting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. How beautiful. I often say, and this is a perfect example of grief coming up, and just it just you know hits you sometimes. Just does. Which is also, in my mind, a reflection of how important we were to each other. Like, I would never want the grief to go away. I mean, I mean not when I say go away. I mean, I don't, not like I want to walk around unhappy, which I don't. But in a funny way, it, it's always a reminder of how important we were to each other. And there's, there is something nice about that, even though it's hard. Terry and David stayed together, 
Soon David became a prominent civil rights lawyer. He worked on important same-sex marriage cases for Lambda Legal, a national LGBTQ civil rights organization. Terry and David married in 2005. And before that, they were looking to adopt a baby. Because David's lawyer, we even took one adoption agency to court for violating law, and we won. But, you know, it's not a real victory because any agency can just continue to say there are no children for you. But then something lucky happened. We had two close friends who, who were planning to have a child, two women, and they approached us to say, would you... Would you be involved and interested in making a family together? You know, and life is filled with many unexpected gifts, and that was certainly one of them. And so um, that's how we came to have our, our wonderful daughter. David and Terry and their daughter's mothers moved into a house in Brooklyn, the home where Terry still lives. We found a place that allowed for individual kind of spaces for each couple, but that easy flow through internal staircases and stuff between, you know, throughout the house. Was there a um, sort of regular way that you split time or did it, was it more organic depending on the age of No, no, we had to be really purposeful. You Uh know, you can imagine four parents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were very purposeful and we had, family dinners. We had individual dinners with our daughter. Um, we would share and split picking her up from school and bringing her home. And and we were trying to be very conscious of trying to be consistent across the four of us so that she was never felt as if she was being pulled in different directions by the adults in her life. We hardly ever sat down the four of us together because we felt like it's just too, it's like too overbearing to have four adults. (laughs) So we, we tended to just be really cognizant of what it's like to be a little person with all these people who love her. Yeah. In 2018, was your daughter still living at home? Uh, No, she was in her first year of college. So I want to move to that period Mm -hmm. in your marriage. Um, Were you aware in, in in the weeks and months before David died, before he took his life, um, did you have an awareness that, that he was in despair? Um, I knew he was struggling with something, that he was often angry. There have been other times when he was like this, so I didn't, I, I didn't, I mean, we tried to talk about it, but the one thing that was a little bit different this time, it was really hard for him to talk about it. In previous times, we, we'd find our way to talking about it. But I didn't, I didn't see it as something, something way out of the ordinary at all. I, I didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. I always thought, David, I always thought of as very resilient. And, um, and um, when you say just angry was he angry in a way that um it would come out when he was talking about like reading reading the news or was it um a a a short amount of patience for everyday things was it a combination it was more a short amount of patience for everyday things 
um, here. I, you know, he, he had a work colleague that the two of them were really close who I found out later he had been noticing that David had been getting very angry and was around climate, of course, but he didn't bring that home to me. I didn't, I, he, for some reason, shielded me from what the issue for him, although I did know that he was highly frustrated with kind of the status quo. At the time, David was running one of the largest community-led compost sites in the country, operated without fossil fuels or heavy machinery. Terry said David was getting offers from the city of New York to work for the Department of Sanitation. And that offer was frustrating to David because he felt the department didn't take composting and recycling seriously. The city bought into this idea that, yeah, plastics can be recyclable. We'll collect them all when, in fact, you know, you can't really recycle most plastics. And so it's just kind of this this wink and nod of, oh, we're really addressing these issues when, in fact, they're not. And I think that deeply frustrated him. That kind of um, moral cynicism uh. really, really ate at David's soul when he saw it. Hmm. You used the word shielded. You said he shielded you from that. I'm curious why you chose that word and also if that was unusual because given how much your relationship, the foundation of it was um, kind of buying in together on this, the important mm-hmm. work of being engaged with systems and making things better. Right, right. Well, you know, I... One of David's, you know, oftentimes people's gifts are also their their Achilles heels. But one of his personality traits is that he never wanted to be a burden on anybody. And I think he saw his level of anger around this. He probably thought it would create, and it probably would have created some conflict because we had talked about kind of his frustration with sanitation. And and I, I had trouble understanding that those are all choices. And we all throughout our life have made choices. And okay, your choice will not be to work with sanitation, but you do all sorts of other things through the compost project. And while I think he thought, okay, yeah, but he didn't believe that. He was in a place where he couldn't see his way out. And I didn't know how to help him. And it was, and I think that's what he was shielding me from. Mm-hmm. That I guess shielding me that from the fact that I couldn't help him. I guess. Um, Will you tell me what you remember about April 14th? How do you remember it today? Oh, you know, it's funny. The first thing I remember is it was just this beautiful, glorious morning, just blue, blue, blue skies. Very, you know, a crisp morning. He got up way earlier than he normally did. He just said to me, he's, 
said, I'm going, I'm going to go for a walk. And I said something like, oh, okay. We usually went to the food co-op in the morning and on Saturdays. And so this is a Saturday morning. I said, oh, we're, are we still doing that? Yeah. And off he went, never to come back. And um, one of my daughter's moms ran upstairs and said, I just got this text from David saying he set himself on fire. And I didn't believe it. I just like, what? I mean, I, for a minute I didn't, but then I thought, oh, Uh, he would never joke about that. That would never. So I, I pretty quickly thought, oh, this is real. And all I could think of is running outside and trying to find where he was. And I had, uh, and all I could remember is I, am I going in the right direction? Which of course I wasn't. And in some ways, thank God. Yeah. I went in the wrong direction. Um, and eventually, one of my daughter's moms did find him and sat with him, his charred body. I couldn't, I couldn't go there. I walked by at a distance, but I couldn't, I couldn't go there. And I guess that's when the night, you know, that's when the nightmare begins of the, you know, media coverage and the all the craziness that happened because he wanted it to be public. Coming up, how grief cracked open something new for Terry. If somebody had said to me within the first year of David's death that this would happen, I would have said, you're crazy. This is, I, I can't imagine that. But it is what's happened. Our Death, Sex, and Money email inbox continues to be a place where you tell us about the kinds of grief you have experienced. We're honored for that. We got an email recently from a listener named Becky, who is a heart transplant recipient. She said she's experiencing grief for someone she never met, her heart donor. She wrote to us, I think of them every day throughout the day. Anytime I see something beautiful or experience happiness or feel thankful for something, I think of them and it is with gratitude, but also with sadness. I am moved to tears often when I think about them and how their life was cut short. And yet they were so amazingly generous in death to give me life. She continued, Please don't get me wrong, I am not sad all the time, but I do experience sadness mixed with gratitude every time I think of them. Thank you for writing to us, Becky. And if you have a story about unexpected grief or the surprising places grief has taken you, you can always email us or send us a voice memo. Our email address is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. These kinds of listener notes are things we share every week in our email newsletter. And you can sign up to get that every week in your inbox at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. 
This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. On Earth Day this year, another climate activist named Wynne Bruce lit himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court. Bruce was a Buddhist, and after his death, a friend of his, Kriti Konko, a climate scientist and Buddhist priest who knew Bruce, tweeted, Bruce's death is a deeply fearless act of compassion to bring attention to climate crisis. I am so moved. She also said it would have been her moral obligation to try to stop Bruce's death if she had known about it. Terry Kelber told me that after the death of his husband, he felt similar tensions. There was deep grief and also a desire to be sensitive to David's purpose, even as he planned for his funeral. I didn't want to cremate him because that's using fossil fuels. and. <laughs> So where to bury him? And I wanted to do it in a natural setting because I like this idea of he becoming compost to the world. And so we, you know, we did that in the first week and it was very private. And then it was kind of so amazing how the, a community came forward of people, many people I didn't know who turned the spot where David had done this into this kind of sacred memory place, bringing flowers and notes and gifts. And, and I went to it every day. I would go there every day. Oh, you did? I still go there a lot. Oh. And, um, yeah. And then... Uh, and this went on for to the end of May, I guess. And then the parks department contacted me and said, you know, we can't have this be a permit memorial site because that's not what parks are about. And so we're going to have to clear this away at some point. And we want to work with you to figure out how to do that. And I had a really, really close friend. David and I did. She became one of my journey guides. And she flew out and and helped us bury him. Because we're not we're not part of any kind of organized religion. And although we are spiritual and and uh she's very much that way and we completely buried him, our the small group of close friends. Mm. Terry, you used the word, the term journey guide. Mm-hmm. How did you come to start using that term, and, and what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's like the first year, 
I feel like the first year I just, it's like I just walk through the year. And then when his second anniversary came up, I remember saying, I want this coming year. I want to figure out how to move on. And I don't, I'm not clear how to do it. And as I thought more about it, I thought, and I'm going to need help doing that. So I just started thinking about asking people to play this role with me. Oh, It's like I put out in the universe that I need help and I need people to kind of help me along the way. And there are people who showed up who I'd never, there are two people I'd never met. One was an artist who just, there was something about how he lived his life that I thought I need to be open. Hmm. Uh, I need to be open. You know, if I'm going to move on from grief, I just, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I just need, I need to just be open to what comes. And I have never lived my life that way. I've been very, <laughs> I haven't, I've been very goal oriented. And, um, huh. And that's what this artist did. And he shared with me kind of how it played out in his life. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you use that word when you said, like, I'm, I'm looking for help and figuring out what my life is going to look like? And yeah, I need to be a guide? I, I used the word guide. I did ask people, would you be willing to kind of be a... Um, yeah, I need help trying to figure this out. And I'm looking for, I call them journey guides. I'm on a journey now and I, I need people to go with me on this. You might not make this connection, but it strikes me as um, you, you, you formalized this, this kind of unit of people um, to give you the care you needed, even though it was kind of made up. Um, It, and it, seems similar to me of how you ended up parenting. You were like, let's figure this out, but let's figure out a system to make this work. That's true. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. Um, Yeah. Interesting. I've wondered, um, is it difficult for you to read kind of the latest headlines about the climate crisis and statistics on how things are continuing to get worse? Oh my God, yeah, no, it is. I kind of, I, I'm almost, I feel like I'm almost a little detached. I look at it and just shake my head. I, I, we seem to be incapable as a society, as a world, to do what needs to be done. It's like we're marching, we're a bunch of lemmings marching to the cliff we're going to fall off of. I, I kind of am starting to see this as we're a society that's all built upon this idea that all we, it's all about just taking for us. Whatever we need, we take. And, that's, and we've done that to the earth. And we do that to each other. I, I don't know what else to do. I do feel as if, you know, David's, David's call to action was really, in some ways, spoke directly to this, this idea that change is going to happen when we each individually commit ourselves to it. When you're holding it once that you wish David had not taken his life and also that David took his life um, 
with a message that he hoped would be meaningful. Um, just how do you carry that mm. tension? So, you know, I, firm, I, I think he was really misguided by thinking that his act would have the kind of, you know, I think, you know, would wake people up. Um, when, when Bruce, who set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court, when he did that, I, my thought was, and I feel this about David, which was, it is such a waste for them to have done this. That the belief that our media will even want to pay attention to what they want to say is wrong. Our media sensationalizes the act as not at all interested in the message. And then they move on. He was a great writer. And I was encouraging him to write. Why don't you write about this? I, but somehow I think he, I don't know. He just didn't want to do that. And, um, yeah, it's just funny. I was thinking with when Bruce that it would have had so much more impact if he had gotten a hundred other Buddhists to chain themselves and circle the Supreme Court. That would have lived on for days. Hmm. They would have been able to get their message out. You know, I don't know. I just am so I I I that's the piece to the degree I'm I get angry, it's around that. It's like, what were you thinking? You are so smart, David, and you thought that this would make a difference. And I don't really think it does. I think it's being in the fight that makes a difference, hmm. not checking out. Over the last three years, Terry has collected four journey guides. He says they've helped him to continue to move forward with his life and to process the difficult feelings around David's death. And in the past year, Terry met someone, a new romance. The person's very different from David and really, really different in practically every possible way. And I think that's, that I think people have, have, that's been hard for people. Mm. And um, Different in every possible way. Can you give me an example? Um, David was somebody who always did something for a reason, very goal-oriented, very intentional, um, very cerebral. This person is really is of the heart and intuition, uh, definitely is, has goals that he wants to achieve, but approaches it a different way. It's also much more, I was going to say much more fun-loving, but David was fun-loving. It, it just that the person I'm with now is very much in the moment. And I sometimes make decisions I would have never made, like spur the moment. Let's go here. Let's do this. And it's somehow, you know, it's, it reflects kind of what I've been, what's been cracked open for me, which is to, to be open to what comes. And to really look at, well, if you want to do it, why not? 
Yeah. Life is short. Has there been, as you've noticed these parts of yourself sort of crack open and some joy um, be part of that, um, has there been moments where it's, uh, where you feel ambivalence about that because somehow continuing to be sad um, would be honoring David? No, no. In fact, just the opposite. I feel as if, you know, I do think David, and he said this in the note he left for me, he, it's, you know, I want you to be happy. Um, you know, and he apologized. He said, I'm, I'm really sorry for all the pain this will cause. But, um, no, I don't, I don't think that for a second. I think, I think this is what David want, would have wanted for me. And I just wish, I just wish he was here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last question for you, I'm, I'm thinking back on your 31-year-old self who was really trying to think through how to, how to make sure the life you were living was going to create the impact that you hoped for yourself. And I, I just, I'm wondering if you were to say at, at this moment in your life, when you think about what's coming, um, how would you say what you hope, what you hope your, your impact is? What are you trying to do? Oh my God. <laughs> it's just you know, a, short, a short, small question to end up our conversation. No, the reason I was laughing is I was thinking, oh man, I have, that's another way in which I've changed. So my 31 year old self, yeah, I, I've had, I've done stuff that has definitely had impact. I'm, and I'm clear about that. But I actually don't think that's the point of why we're alive. And I think that was a misguided desire of the younger me. I think the point we're alive is to really have deep, personal, loving relationships with all the people around us. And that it is through those relationships, if we really try to have them with everyone around us, the person we check out with, the person we at the grocery store, the people we work with at work, the people in the community, the people are on the subway. It's in those relationships that we create real change. That's Terry Kelber, who talked to me from his home in Brooklyn. If you are struggling with your mental health, please reach out. Call the National Mental Health Crisis Hotline. The number is 988. As we were putting together this episode, Terry also appeared on another podcast, Today Explained from Vox, along with Tim DeChristopher, who was imprisoned for his climate activism. It's a really interesting episode about the climate crisis and mental health. You should check it out. And if you are experiencing climate grief, I encourage you to go back and listen to our episode with researcher Britt Ray about our emotional reactions to the reality of climate change. There's a link to that episode and the Today Explained episode in our show notes.
That, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azoulay. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Lily Clark. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P I C S. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Anne-Marie Duchon in Belchertown, Massachusetts, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. You can join Anne-Marie and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 